Well, good morning. This morning we come to the end of First John. I hope you've enjoyed it, uh, going through and getting to know that book. And there's so much more there that we haven't covered, and I encourage you just to keep looking at it and seeing what God says to you through it. Next Sunday, we're going to start the Christmas Advent. And uh, the Advent season is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, Started way, way back in history. Churches started doing it. Uh, The evangelical branches of churches tended not to do it until recent times and is becoming more popular amongst evangelical churches now. But it's just to get our thoughts Thinking ahead, the idea is to prepare us for Christmas, and uh, each Sunday has a different theme uh, leading up to that. And so uh, Byron is linking us up. There's a a Bible reading program that starting next Sunday, it'll be in your bulletin, it'll be announced, um, where you can start just uh, your devotions at home. If you'd like, uh, follow the Bible reading program, and uh, on Sunday we'll have the the wreath here with the candles, the candles will be lit, and uh, there'll be readings and so on that go along with that. So that's what we look forward to for the next month. If you want to turn in your Bibles to First John uh, chapter 5, uh, we're going to be following along in there, or it'll be up on the screen here, uh, so whichever uh, you prefer. John uh, Corcoran. Uh, started a life of secrecy at a very young age. Uh, his secret was he couldn't read. His teachers just moved him up from grade to grade, and uh, he sat in what he called the dumb row. John remembers at age eight saying his prayers at night, as praying this way, Please, God, tomorrow when it's my turn to read, please let me read. But when he was asked to read, he would pretend to be invisible, just ignoring the teacher, knowing that eventually the teacher had to go away at some point. Eventually, he began to act up in class to hide the fact that he couldn't read, and from fifth grade through seventh grade, he was expelled, suspended, spent many of his days in the principal's office. He had a loving family who supported him. They tried to work with his teachers, but no one realized that he had a reading problem. They all thought that he had an emotional problem, a psychological problem, a behavioral problem. They put different labels on it. But then he entered high school, and he wanted to participate in athletics, and you had to have your grades up in order to play on the team. And so he decided he would do what it took, and so he decided to behave. But he couldn't still read. And so he started cheating and turning in other people's work. Uh, He dated the smartest girl in his class and began to run around with her group of friends. And he would persuade them to complete his assignments. He was so good at cheating that he earned an athletic scholarship to the Texas Western College. Still couldn't read. There is cheating intensified. One of the things he did when faced with an essay test, he would make sure he sat along the window. He took a little blue book with him. And he couldn't read the questions, but he would copy them just letter by letter into the book. He would pass it out the window. He'd have a friend sitting outside the window who would answer the questions, pass it back in, and then he would copy the answers onto his test sheet. In 1961, John graduated with a bachelor's degree in education and still couldn't read. 
At that time, there was a shortage of teachers, and anyone who graduated and wanted a job had a job. For 17 years, John taught high school. He created an oral environment instead of a written environment. He relied heavily on, he always had two or three assistants in the class. And if any reading needed to be done or any writing on the blackboard, he would simply get them to do it while he talked. While teaching, he began to dabble in real estate. Eventually, he left teaching to become a successful real estate developer, still not knowing how to read. Finally, at 48 years of age, he drove to an office that had a sign outside that he couldn't read, but he knew it was a literacy center. And there, they assigned him to a tutor, and within a year, he was already reading at sixth grade level. Today, John says he's embarrassed about how he deceived so many people over the years, and he's written two books. Uh, The first one was The Teacher Who Couldn't Read, and the second book he wrote was Bridge to Literacy. But for all those years, John was a fake. He could hold a paper in his hand that said he had a bachelor's degree in education. But he wasn't the real thing. His life was a lie. Now, in essence, this is what a different John, the John who wrote the book of 1 John, is trying to warn us about in 1 John 5. And so following that analogy, we too have a degree. Christian. Christ follower. But John is asking, does our life match the degree that we claim? So, so far as we've gone through 1 John, we've talked about how Christians in fellowship with God, they walk in the light. Christians in fellowship with God do not love the world. Christians in fellowship with God hold to the right beliefs. Christians in fellowship with God pursue purity And last week, Christians in fellowship with God are defined by love. Now for the last one John brings us to. Christians in fellowship with God have lives which are consistent with their faith. So this morning I'm going to approach it a little differently than I have been in the other messages. I'm simply going to open up 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to go through it just verse by verse and explain what it means. And uh, so as we do that, uh, you can follow along in your Bible or follow along up on the screen. So starting at verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And so John is giving us a progression here. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you claim that you believe in Jesus Christ, you say that you're born of God, in other words, you've had saving faith, then there's going to be a natural result that happens in your life. There's a natural result to your faith. Here's the result. You will love the God who has saved you. You will love God the Father. There's something seriously wrong with the person who says, I am saved, but I don't love God. There's something seriously wrong with that picture. That just doesn't go together. Either that person is saved and they're walking in sin and sin is hindering their love for the Father or they're not born again. Because John says, born again people love the Father. That's just a natural result from being born again. And the result of that, the result of God who loves us is that he fills our heart 
with love for him. You see, to be born again is a miracle where the God who loves you so much puts into your heart to love him. John says, in a different passage there, we love because he first loved us. You really can't love God until you experience his love in you. But once you've experienced his love in you, you will now love him. And you will love each other. The two just have to go together. And so John follows that up. He says, if you love God, then you'll love God's children. And so here's the progression. You come in faith to God. You're born again. You're, going to, you're now God's child. As God's child, you're going to love God. And as the fact that you love God means you're going to love God's children. You're going to love your spiritual siblings. Again, this is the work of God. And so John is saying we cannot separate our love for God from our love for each other. If you love the Father, you will love his children. There will be a consistency in this. To love God is to love his children. To love his children is to love God. If you don't love God's children, then you don't love God. Now, we see this played out in the natural realm in human families. You have a child that really loves his or her parent, but also love his or her brothers and sisters. It's a natural result. Now, I know siblings fight and so on, but you just go attack one of them. And what happens? You attack them all. You know, we see this bond happening in the spiritual family. We can be from different parts of the world. We can be from different people groups. We can have vastly different cultures. We can be complete strangers to each other. Yet when we meet another believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's an instant recognition of a bond that we share. Our oldest daughter married a man from Fiji. His name is Asa. And sometime after their wedding, we went over to Fiji to meet his family. And at that time, Asa's father was hesitant to speak English. Um, Later, when he came to Canada for an extended visit, his English really improved and got to know him better. But at that time, the communication was there, but it was hesitant. And we were from vastly different cultures. And yet... There's right away that connection. And as we said our goodbyes and uh, he struggled to say what he wanted to say and he just wasn't getting it out in English, finally he just stopped. And he just pointed up and he just said, heaven. And, you know, that's the bond we share. In that one word, it just covered everything. In heaven, we're going to get to know each other. In heaven, we aren't going to have those barriers of communication and so on. You know, we shared the same hope and bond. He's in heaven now. And that's one of the things I look forward to heaven, is getting to know him in a way that I wasn't able to hear. You know, when we don't love each other, then we have a relationship problem with the one we call our father. You know, when we don't get along with someone here on earth, we say we have a problem with that person. 
And John is saying, oh, no, that's not your main problem. If you have a problem with that person, you have a love problem with the Father. That's where it goes to. Because if he is my father and I love him, then I love his children. I cannot separate the two. And so John is saying there's a consistency between my love for God and my love for my Christian brothers and sisters. And so John's answer to this is, the more you love God, the more you'll love his children. It just has to happen. So if you struggle with loving each other, you have a love problem for God. Let's go on to verse 2. John says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. How do I know that I love God's children? Well, I know that I love God's children, John says, because I know that I love God. How do I know that I love God? It's because I obey his commands. And so obedience to God in his commands is the proof that I love God, and that's the proof then that I love God's children. And one of his commands certainly is to love one another. And so a consistent life, a consistent obedient life, John is saying, is our proof that we love God. And John uh, says his commands are not burdensome. Now, the Jews understood what it was to have a burden in obedience. Because the Pharisees taught and they sought to live a consistent life of obedience. And they said through obeying all these rules, regulations, and laws, it proves that we love God. And yet Jesus turns around and condemns them for doing it. Because what they sought was an outward obedience, but it did not touch their hearts. It was a legalistic obedience. It didn't touch their hearts. Their hearts were still self-centered. And so they thought this outward obedience was proof of loving God, and so they just added rule upon rule. The Old Testament has 600 and some rules for them to follow. You think that'd be enough? They went and added many more. Because, of course, the more rules we follow, the more we love God, right? But it wasn't touching the heart. But John says, when we obey God, for them that became a burden. But when we obey God, it's not a burden. We gladly do it. There's a joy in it. As a child, I've never forgot this illustration that a preacher used. And so in his story, he described a woman who had had two husbands. Her first husband was harsh and abusive, and he just laid down rule after rule for her, demand after demand, and she didn't love him, and he didn't love her. And so it was a tough relationship to be in, and he was very hard to love. And so she did what was demanded of her because she had to. But she hated it. She resented it. And then one day her husband died and she was set free and time went on and she met another man and uh, they grew to love each other and eventually they got married and it was a marriage of joy, a marriage of love and one day uh, she was thinking back to her first marriage, she thought about all the rules and all the demands and how much she had just resented doing all of them. And then she thought to her present marriage, 
And she thought about it. She suddenly realized she was not only doing all those things, but even more. And it was a joy because she loved him and he loved her. You know, love makes the difference. For the Pharisees, it was a burden because it wasn't a love relationship. We do it because we're loved, and his commands are joy. So friends, this morning, if God's commands are a burden to you, you have a love problem. That's where it lies. Let's go on to verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. For who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's look at the progression again here. Each of these, John has given us a progression. And so you're born of God. You have the faith, saving faith, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You're born of God. And he says the progression coming out of that is that you'll overcome the world. Now, I think we could use world here in a very broad way, covering everything that's against God, but I just want to focus our thoughts here to the world and me. My dad loved to fish, and growing up, typically we'd take a week, and um, we'd rent a cabin at Muriel Lake, and we'd fish and play in the sand and the water, and one day as a young boy, I was playing in the sand, and another boy came along the beach, and some reeds are washed ashore, and I don't know why he did it. We were totally strangers to each other. But he picked it up and he whipped me with it, and it stung. And I reacted. And you know how I reacted. I picked up one of those reeds, and I didn't give it back. I gave it back harder. Now, why did I do that? That's the world in me. We all have those experiences. Any time that I do not love back, it's the world in me that is showing itself. So let me simplify this. If you're truly born again, there will be a consistency in your life. Your life, or I could say your love, will match your belief, your position in Christ. So if you're not sure that you're born of God, not sure what you believe, John says, well, let's just go on and talk about that. Who do we believe in? And the one uh, that we believe in is Jesus Christ. So in verse 6 he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. So what does it mean that Jesus came by water and by blood? That gets a little confusing. And I wish we could have John up here speaking to you and telling you what he meant. uh, Or at least we could ask him, but we don't. So we have to try to figure it out for ourselves. And... Smarter people than I am argue about this. They have for centuries. So I'm not going to try to prove one explanation or another. People come up with different explanations of the water and the blood. But here are some common ones. So all agree that John is trying to present an argument for who Jesus is. And this goes back to the Old Testament law where Something is established, a fact, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You only have one witness, you don't accept it as true. You have to have at least two, and even better was three. And if they agreed with each other, then you accepted it as truth. That was Old Testament law. And so John is giving us three witnesses, water, blood, and spirit. 
So some people look at uh, the water as uh, that's referring back to Jesus' uh, birth. Some say the water and blood, both referring back to his birth. It's a testimony to his humanity as well as his divinity. Certainly at Jesus' birth, it was well witnessed who he was. Uh, An angel spoke to Joseph and Mary. The angels came to the shepherds. Uh, Jesus was virgin born. Uh, He was the direct fulfillment of so many prophecies. There was so much evidence and testimony of who Jesus is from birth. He's both human and he's divine. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Others think the water refers to Jesus' baptism. That also makes a powerful testimony of who Jesus is. As John the Baptist uh, testified that Jesus was greater than him. He's the one who was to come, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And as Jesus rose out of the water, God the Father spoke from heaven, This is my Son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And as he said those words, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove onto Jesus. And so, yes, his water baptism is also a powerful testimony to who he is. Others think that the water and blood is simply talking about his death. Yes, he was speared. The water flowed out of his side. His blood flowed as he hung on the cross. But many just limited to the blood. And so the blood flowed from his wounds. Again, it's a powerful testimony in that as Jesus laid down his life and he took it up again, he fulfilled so many prophecies. Powerful testimony to who he is. Now you're going to have to pick. There's other explanations also. You'll have to pick which one you uh, want to believe or accept. And I don't think it really matters because whichever one you pick, it's a powerful testimony. But then John says there's a third testimony. And that's the spirit. God himself. And it's the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. The spirit testifies in our heart. He confirms who Jesus is. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Romans 8, talking of the same thing, verse 15 and 16, he said, If you did not receive a spirit that makes you, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Verse 7, verse John 5, he says, There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And so remember, under their culture, three witnesses agreed. It was established as fact. It was truth. And verse 9, he goes on, he says, If we're willing to accept man's testimony, he says, But God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given us about his Son, And anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. And anyone who does not believe that God has made him out out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. If you are truly born again, you're sitting here this morning with that testimony in your heart. That's God himself through his Spirit saying you're born again. You're one of his children. If you're lacking that testimony this morning, there's one of two things. Sin can silence the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And you have a sin problem that needs to be taken care of. 
Or the other issue is you're not born again and the Holy Spirit isn't there and you need to be born again. John goes on and says that uh, if we say, well, we're not going to believe, this is not true. Either you believe or you're calling God a liar. You say that you know more than God, you're smarter than God, you're more truthful than God. So I want to ask the question, does God lie? Can we accept that God doesn't lie? Who here thinks that God only speaks truth? Okay, good. If you believe that God only speaks truth, then John says this is what God is saying to you. And this is the testimony that God has given us. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in a son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. And so God is saying, if you truly have repented of your sins and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in him, you have eternal life. And God's not a liar. He doesn't lie. And so John comes and he just states, really, at the end of his book, he states why he's writing the book. I've written these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And here's the difference. He says that knowing that you have eternal life is going to make in your life. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So here's a further proof that you have eternal life, a further witness. He's given us a fourth witness, really. As you learn God's will, you will pray for it, and you will receive it. He's not telling you you can just pray about anything and God is going to answer anything. He says, as you learn God's will, you can pray for it, and you will receive it. You see, that's the proof. You'll be living going back to the obedience as being the proof. You will be living and asking according to his will. Having said that, John then goes into the second purpose of his book. He's really saying that uh, now that you have eternal life, you're going to begin to lead a life that is consistent with your faith, and uh, that life that's consistent with your faith is going to impact your prayer life, and we're going to be praying for each other that we would lead a consistent life. He goes on in the next verses and he says, if we see a brother or sister not leading a consistent life, you see someone that's in sin, that should be automatically triggering our prayer life. And we pray for that person because prayer is the natural result of love. Love always leads to prayer. If you see another brother or sister that's in sin and it doesn't trigger you praying for them, you have a love problem. Love always leads to prayer. It leads to a concern for that person. Years ago, I heard this story of a tribal group that had come to know Jesus. And one of the practices that the men in the tribe began to do after they came to know the Lord was uh, they were living in the bush, and uh, they would each man would cut his own path out into the bush to find a private spot to pray away from everyone else. 
and he would keep that path clear. And uh, they did this. But as time went on and some of the men began to let their prayer life dwindle and they quit going to their private spot to pray. And so they quit keeping the grass and the bush off their trail and soon the grass would grow back and the bush would creep in. And when the other men would see that trail begin to grow over, they would just come alongside, put their arm around him and say, Brother, I see the grass is growing on your trail. You know, that's what love does. When we see someone begin to just slide away, lose their fervor, their love for God, love will mean the rest of us come alongside. And I see the grass is growing on your trail. And John says we'll begin to pray for them. Verse 18, we know that God's children are, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Verse 18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we're the children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And so John goes on here and he says, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. When we make it our practice to sin, it ought to greatly concern us. Because there's something wrong with that picture because he says we live in a bubble of protection. We don't make it a practice to sin because Jesus holds us securely in his hands. He protects us from the evil one. John says the world is under the control of the, of the devil, but we are not. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say this, well, the devil made me do it. And often it's promoted in Christian circles, well, if you have a problem with lying, well, then there's a demon of lying in your life. If you have a problem with lust, there's a demon of lust in your life, and you can put any sin you want there. And so they'll teach that you need to come against this demon of lying or this demon of lust. You need to pray against them. And I want to say, no, that's an error. You don't have a demon of lying or a demon of lust. Yes, Satan can tempt you, and yes, he does tempt you, but what John is saying, he cannot make you do anything because you are being held securely in the hands of Jesus. The devil controls the world, but he does not control you. He protects you, John says, against, from Satan. Satan cannot make you do anything. Many years ago in a small group, a man asked the group, he said, Pray for me, he says, I want to kick my habit of smoking. And we did pray for him. And the next week, uh, we, went ba- uh, we came back, and uh, I asked him, so how did the week go? And he says, oh, not good. He says, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make him smoke. Rather, during the week, his addiction grabbed hold of him, and he was unable to resist the pull of that addiction. You know, you can pray all you want against the devil and against some demon. That's not the path to the the victory. John says Jesus has already taken care of the devil. He's taken care of that problem. You're no longer under, under his control. Your problem is actually within. James tells us that our temptations come from within. They're our own problem. Paul in Romans chapter 12 tells us that our minds need to be renewed if we're going to be testing the will of God and experiencing it. 
tells us no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 20, John virtually says the same thing. We know the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding. He's given you knowledge, understanding, so that you can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. And so Jesus is doing his part. He's holding you securely. He's protecting you. He's giving you understanding to know the true God. And because of him, we live in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. He has given us eternal life. Jesus has and is doing his part. And that demands a response for us. And John just seems to abruptly end the book. He just says, okay, keep yourself from idols. And he just stops. The end. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. That's a wonderful definition of idolatry. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Idolatry is simply misplaced love. If you have an uh, idolatry problem, something is taking God's place in your heart. You actually have a love problem. That's where it is. Idolatry is what kills consistent Christian living. Idolatry, the lust of the flesh, which is the desire to have things and experience things, the lust of the eyes, the desire for the, what we see, the pride of life, trying to that desire to be significant, to be important, to be better than others, to find significance in all the wrong places, that's all idolatry, and it kills consistency. So let's think about consistency for just a moment here. This afternoon is the Grey Cup football game. Toronto Argonauts and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are going to face off later this afternoon. And there's one thing that's got both teams to the Grey Cup game. Consistency. Think about it. So you're the quarterback. The average quarterback can throw a football 70 to 80 yards. There's an odd few that can throw further than that. And so when you throw it, it must arrive exactly where you want it to be, and you must do all of this under intense pressure from almost any position, and you must be consistent in doing it every time. If you call for your receiver to be 70 yards out there, you better have that ball landing at 70 yards. If your throw is 15 yards short, probably going to get intercepted. If you're 20 yards wide, he's not going to get it. It's only consistency that wins the games. This works in business also. I've heard business owners say that they think that they have a good worker if the worker simply shows up every day. One town that we lived in, this was a real problem. Uh, The town was booming and business struggled because they didn't know if a worker would show up on time or even be there. Many of them were hiring teenagers, and these teenagers, uh, if they had something going on that day they wanted to do, they would just not show up. They'd show up tomorrow. They wouldn't even phone in. Or they would just quit, knowing that when they wanted to work again, they could walk into almost any business and they'd get hired. 
because they were so short of help. But something happened in that town. Gradually, the teenage, the Christian teenagers became in great demand. Why? Because they would show up every day on time and they would work well, work hard. And these owners were just saying, we want your young people. We want them. Why? Consistency. Or take marriage. It depends on consistency. If today I love my wife and tomorrow I love someone else, and then the next day I decide to love her again, I'm guaranteed my marriage will fail. Marriage depends upon consistency of love and action. In all of life, if you're going to succeed, it requires consistency. And so if you're going to succeed at the most important thing in your life, your relationship with God and your relationship with each other, we need to have lives that are defined by consistency. A consistency between your faith and your love. So with that thought in mind... John just closes with this simple statement. Dear children, keep yourself away from idols. Keep yourself away from anything that might take God's place in your life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for putting it into John's heart to write this book. It just speaks so much to me just has so much practical things for me to think about and follow. And I just pray for all of us as we thought through these thoughts over the last six weeks that you would just take these things and use them to bring us into a greater love relationship with you and a greater love relationship with each other. I pray this in Jesus' name.